0: This episode of The Witch Wave is brought to you by the self-guided foundational tarot course, Rewilding the Tarot. Taught and developed by intuitive tarot reader and teacher and prior Witch Wave guest, Lindsay Mack, Soul Tarot is a radical reinterpretation of the tarot that allows us to read for the present moment. It is tarot for a new consciousness. Tarot for whatever arises. Enrollment is open now and material is live. To sign up or learn more, visit tarotforthewildsoul.com and be sure to use code WITCH for 10% off your tuition. That's tarotforthewildsoul.com. Offer code WITCH for 10% off. Today's episode of The Witch Wave is brought to you by Witch Baby Soap. Do you like to dwell in the shadows, but stay squeaky clean? Then Witch Baby Soap is the soap for you. They make fabulous occult-themed body products like coffin-shaped bath balms, tarot card soap, and crystal-embedded body butters. Their recipes are made with magical intentions and they're free of all of those nasty things like sulfates and parabens. And now you can get 15% off orders using offer code witchwave. That's witchwave, one word, on witchbabysoap.com. So get ready to wind down, lather up and get some witch baby soap products using offer code witchwave now. The world is filled with bewitching people and you might be one too. Welcome to the podcast where art is magic, magic is real and reality is stranger than dreams. I'm Pam Grossman, and this is The Witch Wave. To the Witch Wave. So I have a confession. I never watched the X-Files. I know, I know. But when it was airing in the 90s, I was a teenager with a much more delicate sensibility than I have now. And the bits of it that crossed my consciousness at the time just kind of freaked me out and grossed me out. And so I skipped it. But the other night, Matt and I were going round and around in circles about what to watch. You know how those conversations go. And he suggested that I finally give this show a whirl. So we watched the pilot, and of course I was immediately hooked, and so it has been added to our media menu But one line of dialogue in particular from that episode has been echoing in my head as I've been working on this show. Mulder says, Now, when convention and science offer us no answers, might we not finally turn to the fantastic as a plausibility? Now, of course, that's Mulder's whole thing, right? He's the believer, Scully's the skeptic, and so their delicious tension plays off each other and makes sparks. Now I know I'm a witch, but I actually fall somewhere in between Mulderism and Scullyism when it comes to magic. As we've discussed before on the show, I am pro-science, pro-vaccine, pro-evidence-based research. And yet, there are so many experiences I've had that interface with the realm of the fantastic, which I know are also valid, and which have informed my life and my worldview. These experiences transcend the binary of fact and fiction because they are operating in a space of mythopoesis, symbolism, intuition, and mystery. And that's why, for me, art is actually one of the best vehicles we have for exploring and expressing the numinous. Art is both true and make-believe. It is informative and transformative. And I believe that the processes that we use to create rituals and cast spells are interrelated to those we use when we write stories, draw pictures, sing songs. I've talked about this and written about this a lot, and will no doubt continue to do so. And shameless plug, this is something I teach with my friend Jonica Stuckey in our many occult writing workshops. But I can't pretend to know how any of it works or why it works, but framing creativity in the language of the divine of magic is meaningful for me. And more than that, it's effective. I've often said that I'm a pragmatic witch, and I wouldn't bother with any of this stuff if it didn't have real world results for me. I just know it does work. Witchcraft whether it's casting circle or conjuring an essay, has changed and enriched my life in countless ways. And that's why I'm so excited and so honored that I got to speak with Alyssa Washuda, author of White Magic and A True Word Witch. In our conversation, Alyssa discusses turning pain into potent prose, as well as what it's like to be a Native American who is simultaneously rendered inspired and invisible by white culture and we touch on so many other important, insightful topics as well, plus a hearty helping of Twin Peaks talk as a cherry pie on top. But before we get to that, first, let's check and see what's come through on The Witch Wire. Who is it? Wishes! Sarah writes... As a relatively new practitioner of magic, I don't know where the line between synchronicity and going down the rabbit hole resides. I feel like I should be paying attention to things like signs and symbolism, but I also feel like I'm going off the deep end when I'm finding all of these correlations, like I'm some crazy metaphysical conspiracy theorist a la Ancient Aliens. I know this doubt goes against everything you teach, but I'm a pretty solitary practitioner, and I don't really have a lot of people to bounce ideas off of. Regardless, even my husband, a non-practitioner, thought this was weird. This week, while finishing up your book, I had a dream that prominently featured ducks and quails. So, being the good emerging witch I am, I scanned the internet until I found several interpretations that all matched. I reflected on my life and concluded that this dream was really pushing me to refocus my energy on learning and practicing my witchcraft and to put my spiritual growth at the forefront of my life. Something else was tugging at me though, so I began researching deities associated with these birds. I found little information on ducks, though the deity I was led to is a river goddess who is also a healer of, of all things, respiratory illness, so hooray for the COVID vaccine. But when I looked up quails, I was met with a plethora of coincidences. Firstly, as I'm sure you know, in some iterations of her story, your girl Artemis, along with her twin Apollo, was born on the Island of Quails. Seeing as I had just finished your book, I felt this was another prompt to lead me back to my craft, as your book really helped shape my understanding of the witch archetype and gave me a reference point to where I might fit into said archetype. Secondly, upon further research, it turns out that the island of quails was actually once a titaness named Asteria, who upon deciding that Zeus's ardor was more trouble than it was worth, turned herself into a quail, then jumped into the Aegean Sea and transformed herself into an island. She also married Perseus and was the mother to none other than Hecate, the goddess of witchcraft. This only reinforced my interpretation of the dream, and has since led me to more research on these deities. Now my question, am I crazy? Is this too out there? Am I making these symbols fit into a narrative I've already built for myself? What's the consequence of that? Do I sound like my elderly relatives talking about Fox News and the deep state? Or could this truly be a sign? Could this dream's purpose have been to point me in the right direction to a divine connection? I've often wondered if there were any deities meant for me, and have researched in the meager free time I've had between work and family time, but I've never had a sign or at least not one that seems as clear as this. Any thoughts or guidance would be much appreciated. Hello, Sarah. First of all, thank you so much for those lovely words about my book. I'm so glad that it's been useful for you. And to your point about this going against everything that I believe, absolutely not, as you can hear from the beginning of this episode. I think that skepticism and questioning and interrogation is such an important part of spirituality and I am not just someone who believes in absolutely everything myself so I think it is great that you are asking these questions. And let me also say that I get some version of this question so often that I wanted to be sure to highlight yours as just one example. I understand the genuine risks that come with allowing oneself to acknowledge these spiritual clues, or following the trail of cosmic breadcrumbs, as I often call it. But there is absolutely a shadow side to this kind of approach to living, it's true. If left unchecked, one can certainly become obsessive about it or start making connections that aren't there or become a conspiracy theorist who starts trusting these symbolic interlinks more than trusting the material worlds that we can perceive and measure with our five senses. There are a few terms which describe the act of perceiving patterns that aren't really there. Apophenia is a word for imagining patterns of meaning in data or other unconnected or unrelated inputs. Paridolia is a word for seeing clear visual patterns or images in indistinct or fuzzy planes of optical stimuli. And of course, there are psychological states that some people live with or live in, such as paranoid schizophrenia or obsessive-compulsive disorder, which have to be considered and cared for. So, how can you be sure what is helpful and what is harmful when attempting to pay more attention to these signs and these clues? All I can say is that for me, When these synchronicities make themselves known in my life, or certain symbols come into my dreams like the ones you're describing, I don't tend to feel scared or out of control or anxious. Rather, I feel supported and excited and expanded. And that's all I can really go by following these winks from spirit, or stage directions from the universe, as RuPaul sometimes calls them, has only made my life better, and helped me learn about myself and my purpose, and has helped shape my life with poetry and meaning. Now could that all be delusional? I mean, sure, maybe. Perception is certainly subjective. But it's not hurting anyone, and it's not hurting me. In fact, it's making me feel more fulfilled and inspired. And it's also not the only way I make decisions in my life or about my life either. I also pay attention to and weigh material information like how my health is and how much money I have in my bank account and who else will be affected by my decisions, etc. etc. But paying attention to these signs and synchronicities is a way to engage with our intuition, our unconscious, and our emotional, interior, and spiritual lives. And I also believe that it is a way that we can engage with more subtle energies and entities than just those that we can see with the naked eye. I think the time to worry about this approach of following these clues or paying attention to these symbols is if it starts to alienate people you love and trust who have your best interests at heart or if it's making you feel unwell or untethered or threatened or anxious. And if any of those things are happening, I'd recommend seeking out a good therapist and stopping. Because it's obviously not the right method for you at this point in your life, if ever. But it sounds to me like in your case, you are receiving these symbols and messages, in your dreams and in your life in ways that are making you feel more alive and more hopeful. So I can't answer what exactly these signs are telling you, but I can say that if you're feeling excited by them and grounded by them and affirmed by them, which it's sounding to me like you are, then it's all worth continuing to explore. Just be sure to maintain your critical thinking skills always, and your health always, and also your sense of humor and play and wonder. Because decoding the divine is fun. So seek on and enjoy. Now on to my guest... Alyssa Washuda is a member of the Cowlitz Indian tribe and a nonfiction writer. She is the author of White Magic, My Body is a Book of Rules, and Starvation Mode. With Teresa Warburton, she is co-editor of the anthology Shapes of Native Nonfiction, Collected Essays by Contemporary Writers. Alyssa is a National Endowment for the Arts Fellowship recipient, a Creative Capital Awardee, and an Assistant Professor of Creative Writing at The Ohio State University. As a quick content warning, in this episode, Alyssa and I talk primarily about White Magic, her brilliant new book of interlocking and interlooping autobiographical essays, And in the book, there are descriptions of sexual abuse, and physical violence, and alcoholism. But in terms of what to expect from our conversation, we touch on some mental health struggles and her experience of becoming sober, and there's one brief mention of her ancestors' violent death, so just a heads up on that. White magic is also funny, and fierce, and so clever, and just totally breathtaking, and it was a true joy to get to discuss it. Alyssa joined me from her home in Ohio via Zoom. (music) Alyssa Washuta, welcome to The Witch Wave.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: Thank you so much for being here. I just finished your book, White Magic. I am head over heels in love with it. Huge congratulations. It's a masterpiece.
1: Thank you so much. I'm so glad to hear that.
0: And I finished reading it actually today, and we're having a very gray, rainy day here in Brooklyn right now. So I was feeling like the Pacific Northwest vibes that are woven throughout a Mm -hmm. lot of the book. And I thought that might be an interesting place to start, which is the idea of land and geography. You were born in New Jersey, like me, Jersey girls. Yes. And then the book takes us to a lot of different landscapes. So can you walk us through a little bit how place informed the map of your book, so to speak?
1: Yes, I was born in New Jersey, and that is part of this book. Most of what happens in white magic takes place in Seattle, where I lived from 2007 to 2017 before moving to Columbus, Ohio, where I am right now. And, you know, I've thought a lot about place and land as long as I've been writing nonfiction because. When I was starting out as a fiction writer, before I got into essays, I was so bad at writing about place. Mm. I just wrote these stories that seemed sort of placeless. And definitely that was pointed out to me in my creative writing classes. And now I look back and see that's because I just hadn't really spent a significant amount of time anywhere but New Jersey and Maryland, uh, where I went to college Once I moved to Seattle, which was so dramatically different, you know, climate, landscape, just attitude,
0: sense of humor. I love Seattle, but it is really different. different.
1: (laughs) And I think that made everything about place become so apparent. And I realized how strange New Jersey is.
0: It's so funny you say that because I've always thought like, like I never had Jersey pride. And I've lived in New York more than I've ever lived in New Jersey. My whole adult life has been here. And I didn't feel like we had any identity as New Jerseyites until I met a lot of people from a lot of other places. It's really, really interesting that you say that.
1: It really helped me to understand myself when I realized how deeply uncomfortable I was in Seattle those first few years. I didn't do super well with the Seattle freeze, the passive aggressiveness. But, you know, as time passed, I developed a really profound relationship with the city of Seattle and with that place. Of course, part of it is because as a Cowlitz person, my tribe is in Southwest Washington state. And so that's fairly close. It's a very similar and related landscape, similar and related plants, and the ways that we have formed relationships with. You know all the beings in that place over time. Um, So that was really significant for me, and that's a really big part of white magic. You know, not just recounting the things that happened to me in Seattle, my you know getting sober, getting broken up with, finding myself in all the ways one does, and in a book of personal essays, and then you know leaving my land and coming to Ohio, where I'm making new relationships with the, you know, vastly different plants and, you know, different animals around the climate is so different. You know, I didn't set out to write a book about place, but it very much is a a book about land.
0: Absolutely. Near the end of the book, and this is not a spoiler, I I don't know that it's possible to spoil your book because you do such an amazing thing with time and this kind of like looping back of symbols that turn up and fold in on each other. And and, and we'll talk about that. But I'm going to jump to the end of the book where you're talking about people asking you, what are you working on? And you say that you usually describe it as, quote, a book about how my heart was broken and how I became a powerful witch. And I want to unpack both halves of that sentence because there is a lot in both of those halves. Mm -hmm. So that first half, a book about how my heart was broken. I was thinking about the... Many different iterations of brokenheartedness that show up in your book, both your personal pains and traumas that happen kind of in your, I guess we'll call it your like immediate timeline. And then, of course, all of the intergenerational brokenheartedness that you carry with you as a woman, as a member of the Cowlitz Indian tribe. And I was just wondering, when you started writing this book, were you already thinking about how those broken-heartednesses were intertwined with each other or was that kind of a revelation that happened as you were writing
1: The revelation very much happened when the book was well underway because for a long time I didn't know what this book was at all I was just really struggling to find my way into anything that made sense as, you know, a central investigation into myself, you know I wanted to write something more about colonization. I knew that I wanted to write more about pop culture, you know, started out with some essays about Seattle, essays about the Oregon Trail 2 video game. And I knew that I wanted to do some of that cultural criticism that I had already been doing in my writing, you know, incorporate some more research. But I was just circling around for the longest time until I had my first big tough breakup in sobriety. It wasn't my first breakup in sobriety, but it was the one that really, really hurt. And it took me so much longer than the length of the relationship to get over it. It was not like that consequential uh, relationship. It was fairly brief, but, you know, I really felt it deeply and I had never felt exactly those feelings with that depth before, not just the, you know, the same letdown i'd had when a crush didn't like me back as a kid but sort of like being a newly sober adult i had all of those old feelings from childhood but all these adult concerns like will i ever be able to live independently in seattle like long term do i have to have a partner in order to stay here mm. eventually you know i just kept getting stuck on this breakup i could not get over this guy and as I was thinking about it and doing some writing about Twin Peaks, I realized this is the thing I am obsessed with. This is, so this is the thing I should write about is having my heart broken. Mm. The way I approach writing essays is to focus on the thing that is in front of me as a thing I can't look away from, the thing that I just you know keep coming back to during the day, thinking about all the time the thing i want to learn more about and just let the writing look there and then see what else comes up as i'm thinking about it what other associations come in and just let them all come in too and just see where it goes
0: so when did the parts about your family and being a member of the Cowlitz tribe start kind of mirroring in some ways, the heartbreak you were feeling with the person in the book who you call Carl—I think
1: those pieces about family and ancestry and history—they weren't exactly in place, but I was aware of them. I also knew I wanted to write about coal mining, my dad's side of the family, and you know my aunt, my ancestors in Pennsylvania anthracite country. So I knew I wanted to write more about you know the experience of those coal miners and the experience of my Cascade ancestor who was hanged for treason by the U.S. government. I'm Kellett's and Cascade by descent. And I knew I had so much more to say about all of that history and so much more to learn and research. So they were just kind of pieces that were all around me and I was aware of them. And as I was thinking about these kind of like little personal problems of, you know, being lonely, being broken up with, being insecure, or whatever. I would see these little points of connection in one of the early essays in the book, Little Lies, which I think is one of the first essays I was working on where I really began to see those connections come in. Some of that is about drinking and getting sober. And of course, you know, writing about alcoholism as a native person is fairly loaded. And I had to address that So anything that I want to address, that's complicated. It just has to come on into the book. And that got me writing about the facts about alcohol use among tribal members and the misconceptions. And also I had this memory of the fact that alcohol played a role in a significant battle that led to my ancestor being hanged. So I feel like all of these things are just Sort of in the periphery of my awareness as I'm working. And I can remember the details that are like, you know, stars in a constellation. And then I I sort of draw
0: the lines. Mm, and you do it so, so beautifully. So let's get to the second half of that sentence, which is, and how I became a powerful witch. So, of course, as someone who hosts a podcast called The Witch Wave and who thinks a lot about witches. I'm always interested in people's relationship with that word. You kind of a little bit go back and forth, I think, on your own comfort with using that word and how much you identify with it. You know, certainly throughout the book, you cast spells, you're casting love spells and cord-cutting spells. You speak a fry daddy into existence, which is (laughs) a pretty powerful witchcraft. But then, you know, right at the beginning of the book, you say the truth is I'm not a witch exactly. I am a person with prayers, a person who believes in spirits and plays with fire. And so I just wanted to invite you to talk about how you're feeling about the word witch today. Understandably, this might be something that's always in flux, but I'm curious as to how you feel about that word.
1: It's even more complicated now than it was when I finished writing the book. You know, The book is about a time period when I did start, you know, really trying out these practices, spells, and also doing tarot and learning about astrology um, pretty intensely. But that all came, you know, after years of feeling like I was really interested in all of that, but didn't have the right to access it or didn't have my own way in. But, you know, some of the women around me just kind of. Gave me the permission I needed. And I learned that it was possible to do these things on your own and that witchcraft didn't have to be Nancy summoning the God to the shore and the craft and, like, you know, (laughs) causing the death of many sharks. Like, (laughs) um, I I just came to see all of these things as tools. I learned that within what I was learning about witchcraft. I had all these spell books and some of them just did not some of the spells just didn't resonate with me. I didn't know how to get some of these items that were called for and it was clear to me by that point that that meant those weren't the spells for me to be doing, but the mm. ones that did resonate were very simple. You know, it suggested to me that I, I I was gravitating toward candles because of my astrological chart. It was suggested to me that I really, you know, keep going with that. And so that was kind of At the center of that sort of practice at the time. But once I was really working on this book in earnest and seeing all these synchronicities coming up, I described the discovery process of all these synchronicities in my life in the book. And that's authentic. It was very surprising to me to see all of these symbols coming up in various places in life and research. Ultimately, I realized that tarot and spells. Astrological charts were all tools to get me towards something that was some kind of power that I hadn't believed in and certainly hadn't understood, but was beginning to get close to. And those were all other people's forms, you know. And it's not just that they were not native forms, it's just that I didn't create those tools. I didn't have an intimate relationship with them. I have a very intimate relationship with my writing process. In the end, the book manuscript was the tool that I really used to access some kind of power. And it was way more powerful than reading tarot to see all of these things coming together. It was absolutely wild. And so just by, you know, letting all of that fall into place, using my intuition to see where my research was going to take me, what points of connection, what symbols, what, you know, synchronicities in my research were going to come out alongside all these synchronicities that were happening in everyday life. The way they came in more and more strongly and abundantly made me realize, like, this is what it is for me, Alyssa Washuda, to be a witch. Like, I am a powerful witch now. It was very hard to give up the writing process, not because, you know, I wanted to keep tinkering with the manuscript. The book was perfect to me. You know, I, I was done with, The the writing process. First of
0: all, can we just take a pause? That you (laughs) just—I am so impressed that you could say that this book was perfect to you. I love you for saying that. It is so rare to have an artist or of any any medium claim the perfection of their work. So fuck yes. (laughs)
1: You know, it was important to me. Like I wanted to spend as much time as I needed to make this book, and you know, I, I say it's perfect to me. I mean, after the, it was perfect, I revised it according to my editor's <laughs> feedback, and then it was perfect again—or um, yes. still perfect. But I'm sure readers will find flaws, some of which I agree with. I don't know, but it—it it was exactly what I wanted to make. But at the same time, the synchronicities were still happening in research, and like I think we had finished fact checking, and I still wanted to, you know, work in some details that I had, you know, encountered, and my editor was. Very good natured about it. But after a while, I had to stop Mm -hmm. and that stopped the process. That's like, that cut me off. And I don't, you know, I don't really know what to do about that. The last, you know, nine months or so have been a little flat as far as
0: magic goes. Mm. Well, I think the last nine months plus have been probably flat for everybody with this freaking pandemic that we're still in. But you know what? Let's take a quick break because. There's so much you said that I want to ask you about. So we'll be right back in a moment. 2,000 years ago, in labyrinthine underground temples across the Roman Empire, the first beeswax candles were burned in secret rituals to the god Mithras. Now you can experience some of this mystery for yourself with Mithras candles, my favorite. Handmade from the purest East Coast golden cappings beeswax with that natural subtle honey and floral scent, mithras candles are the perfect illumination for the mysteries of your life. Mithras candles come in natural gold and rich black varieties. You can also get them in their signature, stunning, hand-dripped style, or you can choose their smooth and rustic version. They also have wide pillars for sale if you're feeling extra expansive with your magic. And very exciting, they now have new long sleeve black t-shirts for sale and I am so excited to get mine because I love a long sleeve shirt and this one is gorgeous. So go on ahead to MithrasCandle.com, that's M as in magic, I-T-H-R-A-S, Candle.com, and use offer code WITCH for 13% off your first order. That's MithrasCandle.com, and offer code WITCH gets you 13% off your first order. Thank you, Mithras. Look, it's hard enough grappling with our own emotions under ordinary circumstances, but even more so when the world is going through massive collective challenges. I am so grateful for my therapist, and even though I've done sessions in person for years, I've been pretty amazed at how effective online therapy has been for me right now. And so I can heartily recommend BetterHelp, an online counseling service which can provide you with your own licensed professional therapist to talk to via video or phone sessions. So if you have anxiety issues like I do or are dealing with depression, stress, trauma, grief, or even just day-to-day struggles with your relationships or your family, or just feeling like you're not meeting your personal goals right now, which, let's be honest, has been very difficult for most of us these days, I really encourage you to reach out to the folks at BetterHelp. They will connect you with a counselor that you can start chatting with in under 24 hours. Now a few things I really appreciate about BetterHelp is that it's more affordable than traditional offline counseling, plus they offer financial aid to those who qualify, and they make it super easy to change counselors so you can find one that you really click with. Best of all, Witch Wave listeners, that's you. Get 10% off your first month of counseling by going to BetterHelp.com/WitchWave. That's BetterH.E.L.P. dot com slash WitchWave. I believe that all human beings can benefit from therapy, I certainly have myself, and I'm so glad that it's becoming more accepted and more accessible to do so. So please pop over to betterhelp.com slash witchwave and find a great counselor to talk to. BetterHelp is confidential, convenient care, and you, my friend, deserve that. Welcome back to the Witch Wave. Today I'm speaking with Alyssa Washuda. So Alyssa, you're talking about all of these synchronicities that were unfurling for you through the writing of this book. And that's something we actually talk a lot about on this podcast. I often talk about what I call following the trail of cosmic breadcrumbs. Yes. It's it's very (laughs) Dale Cooper. And so I have to lead us into what is arguably one of my favorite essays in the whole book as a sister Twin Peaks fan, and that's your essay called The Spirit Cabinet. And in this essay, you kind of weave together all of these different synchronicities that are unfolding for you, both as you reflect on some breakups that you've had As you are watching Twin Peaks The Return and incorporating also some of this series, uh, the original Twin Peaks and the film Fire Walk With Me, you know, you have some wonderful writings from Carl Jung and, you know, some magicians. I mean, it's a really virtuosic essay. And in this essay, I almost feel like we are in real time coming along this detective quest with you as you're uncovering all of these different connections and and synchronicities. So first I wanted to ask you, how did you, (laughs) this sounds very (laughs) juvenile, but like, how did you write that essay? Did you have journals and notes and then weave them together retrospectively? Was it happening kind of in linear time? How did you approach that?
1: I mean, It feels like it was a little juvenile, not in a bad way, but I'm thinking about when I learned, you know, in third grade to write things on index cards for a research project. That is what I did. Um, (laughs) The idea for the essay came to me in summer of 2018 when I had moved to Ohio already and I was going back to Seattle twice first for a professional. Trip, second for a wedding. And both times I arranged to see my ex boyfriend Carl. And we realized while I was out there that we were doing things that were the same things we'd done a year before on the same day. And we got really into this idea and, you know, kept talking about it and kept trying to like look for this in our calendars and think about whether things were auspicious, uh, as we used to talk about a lot. Mm. And I, Got back from Seattle feeling terrible, so sad because I missed him so much. And I knew that it just wasn't going to happen. We were not going to be together. It, it was not a good idea and it was not a possibility. But I still had these, you know, these little auspicious things that we, uh, that we would joke about. And so I just started writing each event down on an index card with a date, you know, the date we went to. This one restaurant, the date we went on, went to the restaurant the next year, that kind of thing. I just wanted to see what was there. So I looked through my calendar, some looking through my email and texts and just, you know, wherever I could find any kind of thing to jog my memory about where I had been and what I had done over the past three years, 2016, 17 and 18, 2016 being when Carl and I got together you know, I didn't know whether I was going to find anything that was interesting. I basically thought it was going to be a bust. I didn't, you know, it's not any way I'd written an essay before. Mm. And during the time I was working on it, I thought like, I knew it was a huge risk. And I didn't think anybody was going to be interested in it, but me. And when it was done, I mean, it was wild to see the way everything lined up. I lined all the index cards up and from January 1st through December 31st. And then um, within dates, it goes 2016, 17, 18. I also had index cards with quotes from Twin Peaks, The Prestige, uh, a book called Here is Real Magic by Nate Staniforth, a magician, and a few other texts like you mentioned. And I just kind of slotted those in where it seemed like they should go. And then I just started writing fragment by fragment trying to keep it in present tense and keep it fairly descriptive just because I wanted the connections themselves that I had not made. The universe had made them. I I didn't do this. You know, I wanted those connections to just be clear to the reader so they could experience what I had experienced, which was that this was a really fascinating arc from January to December, even though it was over three years, all flattened into one.
0: In the book you write... This is what happened when I decided that either everything was meaningful or nothing was, that I could either destroy myself or live inside a riddle. And you talk a lot about riddles and enigmas and puzzles, and that's certainly a theme that shines through in that particular essay, but I would argue throughout the whole book, which is approaching one's life as if it's kind of a mystery. And Twin Peaks certainly has that kind of dream logic. It occupies that space of, I don't know if we'd call it like archetypal detective work or, you know, there's, there's something very Jungian and magical about that show. So what is it about Twin Peaks and the logic or the dream logic of Twin Peaks that resonates with you and that wanted to be in this essay? I
1: think it was just because it started showing up in the world. I mean, I love Twin Peaks. And that summer, that was when The Return was airing. The summer that I was leaving Seattle, I just started noticing things showing up that were Twin Peaks-like. I think the first was a moment when Carl and I, you know, we hadn't really seen each other, talked to each other in a long time. But I went to one of his shows and then, Afterward, we went to this restaurant across the street and I saw fire from the fireplace in his glasses, in the same way that I remembered from a scene in Twin Peaks. And um, I think I write about this in the book. I told him he was the
0: devil. Yes. (laughs) You do write about that, Alyssa. (laughs)
1: Um, And then, you know, went to the bathroom and realized that it had like the red walls and the black and white floor. Um, and it felt very Twin Peaks, and then sometime after that, that same summer, Carl and I were at a different restaurant. I'd been to this restaurant before, and I went to the back to go to the bathroom and saw that the, the kind of, like, back area where the bathrooms were was definitely intentionally decorated, like, the red room, you know, it had Red curtains, you know, checkered black and white floor. There was a birdcage uh, with a like a goddess statue in it. And it just felt like something that I should follow as I was watching The Return and had just rewatched uh, the first two seasons to inform my watching of the third season. So that was just another thing I was following and seeing where it would lead me.
0: Yeah, I was thinking about how kind of looping back to land how so much of that show is about the landscape and there is this Native American kind of mythopoesis to that world and and certainly you know I'm thinking about like Deputy Hawk, who is played by Michael Horse, who's an actual, you know, Native American. And before the pandemic, one of the last trips I took was to Seattle. And a friend and I did the Twin Peaks road trip and we went to the waterfall and all of that. It was amazing. We went to Tweed's Diner, all of it. And I was really delighted by how there's a lot of recognition of Native American mythology and the spirits of the land and all of that as well. And I wondered if part of that mythology or mythopoesis resonates with you on some level, too, since your own tribe's mythology is a thread throughout this book as well.
1: This was something I wanted to write so much more about, but there was nowhere to really fit it. But the show does feature native land, but in a way that's totally de-identified or misidentified Mm -hmm. um, in a way that's so fascinating to me. So the um the exterior of the lodge is at Snoqualmie Falls that's Snoqualmie territory I think the interiors um and certainly the the opening scene with Laura on the beach are filmed in Suquamish territory which I've been to a few times they're actually filmed at Kayana Lodge which is Suquamish tribal business and that's that remains Suquamish land these places are you know far from the land that eventually was identified as the location of Twin Peaks, I believe it was in the return. They have the town being all the way in the Northeast part of the state, which is, you know, culturally very different, like related. And, you know, with lots of contact over, you know, the thousands of years and lots of people moving around place to place, but the landscape is different. The tribes are different. And I, I, I find all of this collapsing really fascinating, um, especially because, you know, in Fire Walk With Me, there's a reference to Wind River, which is very far from the northeast part of the state, and in fact, is my traditional territory. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a picture of one of my ancestors with her canoe in Wind River. And so Deputy Hawk is, his character is Nez Perce, I believe. The sort of like cosmological concepts that he presents as being Nez Perce, as far as I know, are not. They're esoteric traditions. Um, you know, I think he talks about the dweller on the threshold, which I don't know anything about Nez Perce, you know, cosmology, but I know where the dweller on the threshold comes from. <laughs> so, you know, I'm certainly curious about. David Lynch like what informed his conception of these ideas and beliefs and um I think Hawk is an interesting character and I'm really fond of Michael Horse as an
0: actor same 100% same my understanding and I'm just going to dork out about Twin Peaks for like 5 more seconds so listeners just bear with us his writing partner Mark Frost like brought a lot of it in too and I think there are some I think. I'm acting like I don't know. I know that there are some, like, spin-off books that you can buy that are written yeah. by Mark Frost that are, like, supplementary to the cosmology and the mythology. And so I wonder if there's some nuggets in there, too. Ooh.
1: Those are, so I have those, and I'm not fully remembering what is in them, but There is mention of Lewis and Clark, I believe, in both of those books, or at least one of them. It's interesting how Lewis and Clark's, you know, history is part of the sort of like mythology of the American West at this point. But they had real interactions with real peoples, including, you know, my my communities. The journals of Lewis and Clark are like fascinating in a totally different way um, that I'm working with in my next book.
0: Ooh, that's a good little teaser there, Alyssa. And on that note, we're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back. I want to tell you about Hag Swag, a monthly subscription box geared towards weirdos, witches, hags, and other alternative folk. Once subscribed to Hag Swag, you will receive a variety of curated items right to your door, including occult and pagan-inspired products. Burnables like incense or cleansing bundles, crystals, accessories, self care items, and more. Each month's theme has information and magical objects that are useful for both new and experienced witchy individuals and flow with the wheel of the year. Some Hagswag Box themes have included ritual, divination, origins, and astral magic helping practitioners expand their existing knowledge and build their collection of tools and offerings. Containing only cruelty-free, vegan, and gender-neutral items, Hagswag boxes are suitable for hags of all walks of life. And if you use code WITCHWAVE on their website, www.hagswag.ca, You'll get 5% off your first box. So go to hagswag.ca and use code WitchWave for 5% off your first HagSwag box today. Would you like even more WitchWave? Then come join us on Patreon, where you'll get bi weekly bonus WitchWave Plus episodes, ad free WitchWave episodes, and detailed show notes for all. Rewards also include magical merch and giveaways, early heads up about my workshops before they sell out, and all backers get access to our exclusive digital coven, where I lead monthly rituals and video chats, and where you can connect to a community of other wonderful witches. So head on over to patreon.com witchwave and sign up. It's a fabulous way to get more magic in your life and to support the show. Thanks so much. Welcome back to The Witch Wave. Today, I'm speaking with Alyssa Washuta. So Alyssa, when you were tracking all of these synchronicities and going down these rabbit holes, I was wondering if it was always fruitful for you or if it was like This is not a politically correct term, so forgive me, but if it was crazy making, like did it at any point make you feel out of control? And I ask this for a reason. I get a lot of people who write into this show who say to me, you know, they feel that they are witches and they are looking for all these signs and synchronicities, but Like, how do you know when it is healthy and fruitful versus, like, turning into almost like OCD because, you know, we can get carried away with this stuff? How do you feel about all of that? So in the writing
1: process itself, everything was clear to me. Everything was productive and nothing was a problem that I was tracking. (laughs) That's my memory. I also do have a very, always very rosy, like, you know, memories of the writing process, which I know is actually very hard. But that certainly happened to me. And I talk about that in the book a little bit, you know, especially with, you know, looking for numbers. I did get really obsessive about 1111 and 444 and like all these different numbers. And that still happens from time to time. I still notice it. I am not into it to the degree I was back then. You know, I think all I can really say about it is that I knew in life deep down that it was a stretch and that I was straining to make these connections to, you know, show me something that I wanted to see. Uh, And I had that reflected back to me by a friend who, you know, I told him I'd seen something and he said like, that's not a great sign. You sound like you're really excited about that, but I don't think that that's normally thought of as a good sign. When I was just in my head trying to make it work, it was often not very good. But when I was in the writing process, that's just such a closed space that, you know, it's not me making decisions about whether like to text this guy. It's me making decisions about where to go in my research and what to put on the page. And it's much easier for me to listen to myself myself inside of that because it's not ever driven by anxiety. There's nothing inside my writing process that is anxiety driven because I know it's my space. Nobody else is allowed in until I let them in and I'm the ruler of that space and what I say goes and I get to go where I want. So I don't have to feel like I'm you know, compelled by some kind of anxiety, fear, you know, feelings of scarcity.
0: I am, like, grinning from ear to ear listening to you talk about your writing process. It's honestly helping me reframe some of my writing process because I do feel anxious when I write sometimes, not all the time. So thank you for that. That's a real gold nugget. And it's also reminding me of this quote from the German romantic writer Novalis, who I love. He, he wrote, and this was in German, so this is the English translation. In a work of art... Chaos must shimmer through the veil of order. And I think what he means by the word chaos is not necessarily disorder, but almost like primordial chaos, like the magic kind of raw materials or prima materia of life. It almost seems to me like you're this incredible word witch that can hold those two opposites in tension with each other and let that chaos shimmer through this veil of order that you are constructing or maybe you're pulling back. I don't know. But that phrase popped into my head while I was reading the Spirit Cabinet essay. And I was like, I just have to share that with you for whatever it's worth.
1: I love it. And I often use the word chaos to talk about my writing process which I really latched onto when it first came up on Twitter that people were talking about chaotic energy and I thought oh that's me (laughs) I see myself (laughs) in this image and I don't like it but you know like I do think that in writing personal essays especially ones that involve a lot of research there is infinite stuff That I could bring in. It's not just like the massive sea of my memory, but also anything that is even remotely related to my memory, which is everything in the entire world. That is chaos and it's not bad. It's just a thing that I am in and then can use form and language to, you know, to pull on what I want to pull on. And I also use the word constellation a lot. Like there's tons of stars out there, but we can make their, um, relationships legible by calling them constellations, drawing lines.
0: Beautiful, beautiful. Like, I feel almost like my interview notes are mirroring the energy of you and your writing, because I am not going into any linear order. I'm just kind of hopping around as we're free associating in a way, which is, I think, perfectly appropriate for a conversation with you and about this book. And what you just said made me think of the notion of spirits, which runs throughout your book. You talk about this sensation you have of a ghost that runs its fingers through your hair before you go to sleep at night. You talk about living in a house that feels a little bit haunted. This is your Ohio house. And when you are a writer in residency at the Fremont Bridge in Seattle, you are writing to try to see what happened to the indigenous spirit being that supposedly occupied that body of water. And, and if you wouldn't mind telling me how that spirit's name is pronounced, I would appreciate that.
1: Yeah, the Ayahuas. I was really interested in that serpent spirit being, as described to us by Duwamish people, there's a lot of spirits that I think you know various tribes and tribal members would not want to share, but Ayahuasca is documented in work that was done by Duwamish tribal members and as collaborators or consultants. And Ayahuasca is, is a spirit that I learned about from a friend who is a botanist and has a strong relationship with the place of Seattle. So Ayahuasca was this kind of large being that was physically described in different ways, but sounds like it was massive, had horns maybe, and did live in the lake, uh, Lake Washington at a specific point, and was driven away at some point. The spirit has a really interesting relationship with the Seattle Fault because there are several locations along the Seattle Fault that are places where Ayahuas was described as being. So I was curious about whether I could find anything more in the research. And I didn't really. But I think just so many other questions about place came up from that. And that summer, I was doing that research. I mentioned it to Carl, the the boyfriend uh, at the time, and he asked whether are we spirits or do we have spirits in us? And it's such an interesting question to to consider as a person who has moved from place to place. And I associate, you know, spirits so much with uh, places because of all of our old stories.
0: Mm. There's also a great quote that one of your friends says to you, and this is me quoting you quoting them. <laughs> so it goes, alcohol, a friend told me, is called spirits for a reason it will possess you if you let it. And I wondered if getting sober felt like an exorcism of a sort too.
1: Yeah, it definitely did. You know, it did in, in ways that that I don't really talk about, but also, I mean, it, it was an exorcism in so many ways that there's plenty to say, you know. I physically changed so much after I was no longer regularly consuming alcohol. You know, my brain changed, my body changed, my moods became a lot more stable. The book is in part about being misdiagnosed with bipolar disorder, which was in fact not. It was PTSD and alcohol use disorder. So I was taken off the medications and, you know, everything that had been, you know, working on my systems in various ways was gone. And I, physically and emotionally changed quite a bit. An exorcism is like difficult, right? It was mm. very hard to, to quit drinking. I made attempts to, to reduce intake or to take a break and come back. The only thing that worked was a complete purge, deciding to never drink again. And that felt like a very significant exorcism to just get it out of me, out of my sight forever.
0: Congratulations. That is fucking amazing. So happy that you're on the other side of that. In keeping with our theme of a nonlinear book and nonlinear interview, I was hoping that you would read just a little bit of your book. There's a section where you're at a what you call a meditation based sobriety meeting. And I would love it if you would read a couple passages from that section. I imagine the hole
1: like a yellow plastic ring full of iridescent bubble solution catching light. I try to keep God in the hole, but God is a bag of sand, and the hole gets empty before it can get half full. I fill the hole with crystals, candle wax, handwritten affirmations, auspiciously shaped stones tarot cards, spent matches, shells, photos of ancestors, herbs, astrological charts, shiny pennies, essential oils. I wedge a cauldron into the hole. The woman at the meeting says, we all have a hole inside us and we're supposed to show it to others. Mary, like her son, showed her heart, radiating light, encircled by roses, lanced with a knife, Every night, I drew the same tarot card, three of swords, a trio of blades through a red heart. I touch my hands to my skull and ribs. I try to find the hole so I can show it to anyone who will look, but my hands grow hotter and hotter against my skin as they search. The current rips down my spine, and I feel it, not a hole, but a channel, a tube filling with light. In my mind, I line up all the holes I've ever reached into, holes cut into everyone I've ever tried to love, and I just look at them.
0: Ah, so gorgeous, Alyssa. Absolutely magnificent, magnificent, magnificent. For kind of the last topic that I think we have time for today, I want to loop all the way to the very beginning and talk about the title of your book, White Magic. You know, you just read us a passage where you talk about all of these different, we'll call them witchcraft and new age and indigenous, all of these different ways that you're using what I would call magic to try to heal or come to a place of understanding in your life. At the same time, It's very clear, and and we've talked about this on a few other episodes on the show, that there is this kind of vein within the occult community, the New Age community, of white people who culturally appropriate and, you know, take the magic or the traditions of indigenous folks or folks that have been colonized and cherry pick it and use it as their own kind of magic or or try to incorporate it in their own witchcraft. And I think sometimes it's because of pure ignorance and other times it is not. And there was a section in your book where you talk about the white magic of names that have happened to the land. It, It just really struck me that that Phrase "white magic" has a a lot of different meaning, and I just wanted to give you the opportunity to talk about how you knew that was the title for your book.
1: I had a different title before that I didn't like, and so I just sat down and I think just wrote out some notes and came to that title, "White Magic." You know, I don't remember exactly how it resonated then, but I think you know after everything was done and I must have had these associations at the time, but I see the book as, I mean, it's a magic trick in many ways. And one of the sort of tricks is the, the way I show you the, the thing at the beginning and get you looking there and then something else is happening where you're not looking. And so I think I, you know, I'm leading the reader to think that this is going to be a book about cultural appropriation and witchcraft and all of that. And I do get into that, but Why is white magic said to be good and black magic is said to be bad? A lot of that's racist, but, but ultimately, you know, I'm glad we're talking about this last because, you know, you see I've talked about twin peaks and the prestige and Oregon trail Two and all of these things (laughs) that are, you know, narratives and entertainment items that, that went into this book. That's, you know, a real experience in magic, you know, narrative is is magical. At an event, I called it white people's art and uh, someone in the audience got re- like really objected, but like, I mean, David Lynch is white, you know, like mm-hmm. just. And so I, I wanted to use the writing to, to create an honest representation of my experience of ex- like feeling magic through engaging with this art that wasn't meant for me exactly that I can't necessarily see myself in as, you know, as the audience is intended to. But I was able to use it for my own purposes. And, you know, that's my own act of generative appropriation, I think.
0: I love that. It makes me want to really zero in on the passage of the book, where you call out the power of names. You're kind of going through the Lenape place names that you talk about. Uh, and forgive me, I am probably going to mangle the pronunciation, so please correct me. Um, Aquashico- it's not my language, so okay. I don't
1: actually know okay. for sure.
0: F- thank you. Fair point. Um, Aquashicola is the place where we fish with bush net. Kong is winter watering place for deer. And you name a few other examples. And then you go on to write, settlers made new names, liberty, hope, harmony, independence, I imagine the naming was a kind of white magic, an incantation against the wickedness they believed was striated into the bedrock. And I think it's such a brilliant passage because, of course, it's about erasure and it's about they use these pretty shiny names to try to claim the land as their own. And in some fucked up ways it worked, right? And in others, it caused actual demonization and, you know, all kinds of pain and and evil. I just think, yeah, naming your book White Magic, it is such a magic trick because it operates on all those different levels. And I suppose just to tie it all together, if such a thing is possible, uh, when working with this kind of material... I'm holding up your book to you. You have the words White Magic written on the cover in the same form as the famous Abracadabra sigil. Listeners will be familiar that there is a triangle and it says Abracadabra and it loses a letter with each line as it goes down. The cover of the book is very clever in using that conceit uh, for the title of your book. And so for final words, is there any manifestation or any kind of spell that you are hoping this book will cast? Or has it already done its work on you? And that's good enough.
1: It's already done so much. I mean, you know, I don't, we haven't even talked about the fact that I, in finishing the book, I mean, it was, it was like a spell. It broke something like it broke really destructive patterns. And I mentioned it in passing in the book, but right after I finished it, the manuscript and sent it to my agent. And I knew I was, you know, basically done that I was going to do revisions, but like, I had a feeling like the major work of this is closed. I just finished something. And then I met my partner who, you know, lives with me now we've been together since, uh, well, I guess July of 2019, like, very shortly after, and in territory that was very significant to the uh, to the book, in Coast Salish territory um, on the Salish Sea. So, <laughs> I mean, it was it was a really powerful spell.
0: Alyssa, <laughs> okay, people can't see my face, but like I cannot put my arms down. I'm so happy, and you know, I didn't want to be nosy and ask, but I absolutely wanted to know, like, how's your love life? So. That's so powerful. I'm so thrilled for you. Congratulations. Thank you. So, hey, if nobody reads this book, that's okay. No, we're just kidding. I want everyone to read this book. It is absolutely magical. It casts such a spell. It's so beautifully written. And I'm so thrilled that it has been such a healing spell for you, Alyssa. That just fills my heart with such, such joy and gratitude. How wonderful.
1: Thank you. Thank you so much.
0: Thank you for being here. Thank you for writing this. And thank you for your time.
1: Oh, yeah. It's been so great to talk to you.
0: That's it for the show. Thank you again to Alyssa Washuda for sharing her wondrous writing and magical detective work with me. Do you have questions, feedback, need some witchly advice, or just want to share something magical that happened to you recently? Drop us an email at witchwavepodcast at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you, and you just might make it on The Witchwire. The Witchwave is produced, written, and recorded by me, Pam Grossman. This episode was edited by Josh Wilcox. Thank you, Josh, and myself. Our theme music is the song Hand and Eye by Lycanthia. Special thanks go to Dianca London, Matt Freeman, Lara Antal, and Cece Pascal. You can check out information about this and other episodes on our website and now by Witchwave Merch at whichwavepodcast.com. Please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts and give us lots of sparkly stars. It really does make a difference and helps other people find the show. You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at WitchwavePod, and you can check out my witch emoji for iPhone by going to witchemoji.com or downloading it in the App Store. Please consider picking up my book, Waking the Witch, which is available everywhere now. And if you want more Witchwave, or you would just like to support the show, please do join us over on Patreon. That's patreon.com slash witchwave. Thank you so much for listening. Witches are the future. I'll catch you next time on The Witch Wave.